0: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org, and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really wanna help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
1: Our discussion is gonna be led off today uh, by Brian Bean um uh for those of you who are not familiar with brian he is part of the editorial collective um at rampant magazine um of which i'm also a part uh our tagline is revolutionary politics chicago style um brian is also uh an amazing organizer around um socialist politics around solidarity for palestine around um Uh, Ending state violence um, and and racism. He's also a co-author with Sumeya Awad of Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, which is really excellent, um, excellent book. Really urge folks to check that out um, from the bookstore Um, and the author of forthcoming books as well. So we'll continue (laughs) to hear great things from Brian. Um, So he's going to lead off our discussion by presenting for about 30 to 35 minutes, then we'll open it up for a really um, participatory discussion. So please do think about um, questions and comments and thoughts that you'd like to bring into the discussion and we'll talk a little bit more about how we'll organize that later. So let's welcome Brian.
2: Can you all uh, hear me in the back fine? Cool, cool, cool. How's everybody doing? Woo! Excellent. I like that they said the title and people were like, yeah, so hopefully that's a, that's a good sign. Um, so it's said that the United States is a democracy. Uh, we don't live in a dictatorship, but we do live in a police state. Two million people in our country are locked behind bars. Jail is entered 10 million times a year uh, by folks in this country. We have the largest percentage of our population behind bars than any other country in the world. Police patrol the streets of every U.S. city and police receive funding that are make up giant wedges in municipal budgets. Chicago's budget last year gave it the largest amount, $1.9 billion, the city has ever given out uh, to policing. Uh, over a thousand people are murdered by the police every year, with many thousands more brutalized. There have been only five days so far in 2022 in which the cops didn't shoot and kill someone. And of course, the carceral violence, the bloody hand this country imposes, is racialized at its core, with anti-black racism being a central operating and targeting mechanism. Concentration camps on our borders lock up over 40,000 individuals fleeing circumstances in their country that are often related to American political and economic meddling, dividing families with endemic cases of sexual assault, Oh, and the National Security Agency makes it where basically nothing that we have is private. Um, it doesn't really matter because big tech will still give you information for them um, like they did with the uh, teenager and mother in Nebraska who is getting felony charges for receiving an abortion because Facebook gave the chats to the local police. The police state acts beyond the border with the U.S. currently operating in 40% of the world's countries, uh, maintaining military bases in 40 countries, and stations combat troops in uh, 14, another seven being bombed by planes and drones, and of course, waging economic war via sanctions on another handful of countries. Roughly a third of the federal budget goes to Team USA World Police. And yet, Biden, in his melodramatic Philadelphia speech, tells us that This is a nation that rejects violence as a political tool. We do not encourage violence, defend liberal democracy. This conference is full of talks that pick apart these in in much more detail. Whole libraries are filled with cataloging the unending violence, unvarnished racism, and inhuman terror that is the everyday operating procedure of the US state. On that basis alone, Any socialist, indeed any individual who holds dear to a dream of a world free of this pervasive violence should relish the idea of abolishing this edifice with all its death-making institutions and of smashing the state. And to that last point, I want to fix the title of this talk. Yes, we do mean actually smashing the state. I argue that this pithy little slogan is actually a core element of the project of winning socialism and essential for ending the despotic order of global racist capitalism. Now Now, there are a whole host of immediate Um, tactical and strategic debates in our movements about the reforms we fight for, how we do it, what's our relationship to elections, the Democratic Party, how we organize, reform and revolution. And I think if you dig deep enough, the question of the state is there at the center of each of those debates. Oftentimes, we're arguing around the peripheries and not cutting to the heart of the matter, and that is, what is our understanding of and orientation to the capitalist state? And even with that, I think kind of Marxist theorizing uh, for some reason is dramatically under-talked about and debated. That's especially the case outside of the halls of academia, where I don't often go. Um, (laughs) We need to be able to combine our theorizing of the immediate practical tasks with that of big picture picture questions, like socialist revolution. Because our goal isn't just about winning the wage increase or the eviction moratorium or closing this or that prison, but for a radical reconstruction of all society. Our project is as big as a picture as one can imagine. As the poem goes, for our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. So to do that, I'm going to sort of do a couple things in this talk. I'm going to talk about what the state is, I'm going to talk about what I think Marxists say about smashing the state, and then I'm going to talk about a common argument against that that we see in the socialist movement. Um, So first, starting with the state. So first, what is a state? A state is an organized body of people charged with a monopoly on certain social functions that are crucial, making and enforcing through legitimated, legitimated violence rules. It's a combination of a bureaucracy, think State Department, Treasury, Interior, Congress, and that of an armed force, Army, FBI, CIA, local police. In most capitalist states, a minute speck of these individuals are elected, although the ones that are elected do play a role kind of adjusting the course, even though the general trajectory is already preset into inbuilt, if will, into what the state is. The modern capitalist state, as described in a famous line from the Communist Manifesto, is, quote, but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. Managing these affairs means ensuring the smooth functioning of capitalism for the capitalist class in any given country. And the core of this management of capitalist order is special body of armed men, and I keep it gendered on purpose. To use another famous phrase of Lenin, These two elements, the monopoly of threat of overwhelming violence and the manager of capitalist interest is the operating principle of the capitalist state in general. I'm gonna talk about those two pieces uh, briefly in turn. First, in thinking about this committee for common capitalist interest, it's important to note that this committee isn't usually a literal committee of ruling capitalists. I say this without minimizing the massive influence the capitalist class exerts via ways that I think people are already familiar with. Um, campaign contributions, the army of lobbyists that they have, the revolving door of actual members of the ruling class who go in and are state managers, all those sorts of things. But even with that, it can't be said the state is a simple tool or instrument that is immediately directed by all the billionaires with their top hats and twirly mustaches sitting in a darkened room. This is what is called the instrumentalist theory of the state. And some crude Marxist uh, analysis make this error. The instrumentalist theory, as pointed out by radical sociologist Fred Bloch, misses two key features of the state. The first is that even if it does serve as a tool of class rule, which it does, it must appear otherwise. The fact that the bourgeois state appears as a neutral intermediary plays an important ideological function. But secondly, and more importantly, the general interests of capital aren't always shared by all the capitalists themselves. So capitalists as a class aren't class conscious, even though they have a very high degree of solidarity, particularly when it's against us. Jeff Bezos, for example, has his interests in making the most profit of his little slice of the pie, and this shapes his inability to know the best interests of the system as a whole. Uh, as capitalism is a system driven by the processes of exchange on the market, capitalists are in competition with each other. That's why Marx and Engels refer to capitalists, the capitalist class as a hostile band of brothers. They're still siblings, but they feud a lot. This is dramatically more the case when you begin to talk about imperialism, competition between capitalists of different states. Because of the competitive and crisis-prone nature of capitalism, sometimes the state has to do stuff that might act against the private interests of this or that specific capitalist. Price controls, restrictions on exports and the like, or even aid the working class sometimes to quell caste, to quell class conflict like implementing the new deal out of fear of insurrection or ensuring social reproduction like making sure there actually are workers that are able to work thus states or state managers specifically once kind of constituted develop their own special interests what makes the capitalist state unique say from a monarchy is that to quote engels it stands above society However, it's important to note that some reformists use this critique of crude instrumentalism to say that this so-called relative autonomy of the state means that, hey, since there are divisions between the capitalist class and, you know, they're not class conscious, the state's simply a tool. Let's just grab hold of it and use it for our purposes. I'm going to talk about this problem uh, later on but i'll point out that this position just flips the neutral tool analogy on its head as opposed to having a structural analysis of why the state functions to serve capitalist interests it's not just who's doing it it's what it does states rely on tax revenue and borrowing that depends on profitability and a business climate that promotes investment this is especially the case during periods of economic crisis and of course Capitalism is inherently crisis-prone. It moves in cycles of booms and busts. When capitalism is in a bust cycle, state managers' job is to work to restart the capitalist economic machine and work to facilitate capitalist investment. And this is what largely determines the overall level of economic activity under capitalism. So pro-business decisions, which often carry with austerity for working class, are what the state carries out. Now, this is a simplification in some senses, but states have to compete for the private decisions of the capitalists to maintain themselves. And thus, the structural function of the state is to ensure the smooth, profitable functioning of the capitalist system in general, and specifically to manage a favorable business climate for the interests of the state's specific nationalist capitalist class. And here I want to gesture again. If you take this to the international scale, it gets even more complicated because, you know, in the cutthroat world of the market, where capitalists are in competition and competition breeds crisis, something needs to be have a degree of independence to facilitate a market order to keep business going. And that's what the state does. So for the state maintaining market order, that essentially and especially requires the organization of violent force. And this is the second element of what the state does. Having that viable business climate for investment means that a monopolization of what is called legitimate violence has to be secured in order to ensure that order is maintained. Cops beat protesters, mass incarceration designed to thwart black, black rebellion. Tanks roll through the streets to quell uprisings. Bombs, troops, and infinite war abroad operate to maintain hegemony and access natural resources. Assassinations of radicals, infiltrations of left groups, all these sorts of things functions, the special body of armed men that play a social function for capitalist order. For our purposes, I just wanna underscore that this component of the state is its keystone If what I said previously about what drives the state to act in capitalist interest, the thing that enables it to do so and act in its capacity for violence is a special body of armed men. It's the holstered gun on the authority of the cop when they come up to your car. This centrality is unchanged. Even though since the writings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, layers have been added to the state. The state is certainly, you know, has more layers of bureaucracy, has more complexity than before. And I think post-World War II, that's even more the case, because there have been elements of the welfare state that's been added. Um, and obviously that was because the uh, post-war economic boom, that's a lapse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the post-war economic boom, which didn't really have a comparison, allowed to seed some of these, the, these gains to, to workers as temporary as they are. But I think to sort of see the complexity of the capitalist state as meaning the violent core is no longer there is an error. You can just look at the raw numbers as one, instru- as one element of that. The budgets, which of course come from workers' tax dollars uh, on both the federal and local level, still devote from a third to over half on paying for these armed men that oppress us. Let's also look at the relative sizes. So the Department of Labor, for example, has 17,000 employees. The Department of Education has 4,000 employees. So let's compare the size of that with uh, the 12,000 congressional lobbyists. Um, Applebee's has 75,000 employees nationally. So just sort of comparing the importance of of these bodies with a, you know, shitty corporate restaurant. The size of the entire non-military federal workforce is 2 million, but 35% of those are civilians who are working for the Department of Defense. The military numbers 1.4 million individuals. Indeed, the DoD is the largest employer in the entire world. Uh, local police also make up a huge component. In Chicago, here, cops make up 40% of the city's employees. So, from purely the stance of raw numbers, the special body of armed men, description still figures centrally, and it's this murderous leviathan that's the reason uh, that's reason for being is to be deployed to institute capitalist order and defend the state and private property. So. The state structurally plays the role of instituting and maintaining capitalist order, attempting to generalize the workings of the capitalist system and wielding a monopoly of violent force to ensure its rule remains. It's not a neutral tool, but a special organization that historically has developed for one sole purpose. So let's talk about its destruction. So the phrase, (laughs) to smash the state. So the phrase smash the state was popularized probably by Lenin in uh, State and Revolution, but it comes from Marx and the lessons that he and Engels gleaned from the Paris Commune. In 1871, I think probably people probably know this, but in the midst of a massive political crisis and war, the workers of Paris rose up, took control of the city, and engaged in an experiment of democratic self-rule for roughly three months. In April, as the events of Paris were ongoing, Marx, in a letter to a comrade named Kugelmann, wrote that he had learned that what was was essential for real people's revolution, his words, was not to transfer the bureaucratic military machine from one hand to another, but to smash it. Um, As a side note, he also told Kugelmann that he had bronchitis. Uh, The German word he uses is zerbrechen, which means to break apart completely. The lesson of the Commune would relatedly figure into an 1872 preface to the Communist Manifesto where Marx and Engels said, this is the one thing we would change about the Communist Manifesto. And they said that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and weld it to their own purposes. Marx, who also wrote that the most useful thing the state could do was to commit suicide, and Engels, who opined that he looked forward to the day when the state would be, would sit in the Museum of Antiquity next to the other no longer tools, both were quite clear that the transformation to a socialist society would require a revolution against the state with the goal of abolition. Uh 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 So why? There are a couple of reasons rooted in the fact that socialism, for each according to their needs and by each according to their ability, is a democratic project. Indeed, I would argue it is the only actual possible democracy. Instituting our democratic determination over our world, our labor, the fruits thereof, require a completely different type of social organization. Yes. The capitalist state in the form of bourgeois democracy, which Marx and company called the most stable form of government for capitalism, precisely because of the illusion of democratic control. Straight up military dictatorships are firstly expensive to maintain and historically have been brittle. Like it's hard to maintain that sort of unveiled uh, uh, violence without people seeing and fighting back against that. Yes. But bourgeois democracy, to quote Lenin, well, while a great historical advance in comparison with medievalism, always remains and under capitalism is bound to remain restricted, truncated, false and hypocritical, a paradise for the rich and a snare and a deception for the exploited. So the fact that it's more democratic than feudalism or dictatorship doesn't mean the democracy afforded can deliver liberation, hence the snare. Under bourgeois democracy, politics is almost completely divorced from everyday life. We of course have the right to vote in federal and local races, but of course that's been dwindling more and more, especially if you're black or brown. But we do so in an atomized form, in isolation from any community, via secret ballot, in most cases disconnected from political discussion or actual collective decision-making. Um, and this is, of course, independent of the way the vote is already rigged, via voter disenfranchisement, gerrymandering, money in politics, problem in the two-party system, the list goes on and on. Then after you vote someone to office, we have no real mandate or control over what they do. Um, and oftentimes they go and, and betray us. And I think the whole notion of holding your politician accountable, I find asinine and insulting hot air. Like if you vote for a person to do something, you expect them to do it. And the absence of real control just really reflects that. Additionally, the majority of elections are for people that, uh, the majority of elections are for legislature. So legislature handles the general case of laws, but not the specific business that the state does, which is all really important. All the details of what the state managers, of the different departments do, is very divorced from what any of us have to say about, say, what education should look like or the numerous international summits that go on. So all these summits, the G-8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and all the the climate summits make huge, giant geopolitical decisions that in many ways also affects our very survival as a species, and we have no say over those whatsoever. They carry on, and if you look from from administration to administration, from crappy old Trump to a little less crappy Biden, it's basically the same functioning throughout. On top of that, the vast majority of the state is not elected, and we have next to no control, importantly, that includes over the repressive apparatus of the army and the police. Lastly, and most importantly, in the place where most of us spend the majority of our waking hours, in the workplace, we have absolutely no democracy. We have no control over workplaces, although maybe if you're lucky enough to be in a union that's not shit, you can negotiate over the terms of your exploitation. <laughs> So this Gordian Knot is the product of the state's function that I described earlier. It's not a manifestation of the will of the people, as liberals articulate, but it's a special organization floating above society designed to instill this market order. As we know from the, sto- from the story, the Gordian Knot is not untied, but it's cut through. So the breaking apart of the state is one that is not purely a destructive act. Abolition, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore tells us, is about presence, not absence. It's about building life-affirming institutions. And so we get to those life-affirming institutions by replacing the state with its charade of representative democracy with organs of direct democracy and self-government. This is why the state is a hurdle to the creative act of socialist transformation. The state maintains its role and its place above society, its use of violence to secure that place and maintain capitalist order. Self-government is the antithesis of that. The Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky wrote that the most indubitable feature of a revolution is the direct interference of the masses in historical events. The entry of the masses, a huge amount of people, into their own self or government means breaking apart the previous channels that constrained our activity to this isolated act that is basically pulling your, you know, a ballot box once a year, every other year, something like that. You have to break it apart. And the direct control from below looks very different than a repurposing of the current state. The bourgeois state is premised on divorcing power and politics from the masses. We want to bring all power to the masses. Yes. We don't want the right people in the Department of Education. We want teachers in democratic control of their schools. Yes. We don't want union-friendly bureaucrats to control of the Department of Labor. We want worker control of production. Uh-huh. We don't want control of the police. We want them abolished. Jails leveled, borders opened. This may seem like a chaotic process, but it's actually one that requires a great deal of organization and combativity of our class. And that's precisely why the action of breaking apart is so tremendously creative. To be clear, no one's saying smash the public schools. Like some people argue against that will say that. You just want to just kill the post office. We don't want (laughs) to abolish the post office, tear up the roads, Social Security, but we will definitely trash the DMV. Yeah. But we're saying...
0: Yeah.
2: But we're saying, under worker control, we give these things a greater breadth of life, directly being connected with the power of self-management and our own daily choice. We see snippet of this creativity and struggle when protest tactics and organizational forms are created on the fly. So we see that in the mutual aid that sprung up in the pandemic the protest waves that surge forward. We want councils and assemblies that can bloom in public life during mass struggle to be the form of public life that manages society. Like in Minneapolis, at the same time, they're burning down the police precinct, they took over a Sheraton hotel and ran it as a homeless center. Like this is the kind of destruction creation that we can expect. And so while we aren't there yet, I think it's not something we can do maybe tomorrow. Um, This is why the talk has a degree of abstraction. But I think it must be clear that our side taking power over our lives back from below will always be up against the state. When the ill-gotten gains of the rulers who own everything while doing nothing is challenged, we must not not be naive. They're just going to roll over and give in. Uh-huh. Revolution is required and necessary, and the state, in the end, will be a hurdle, and its abolition the precondition for enacting socialist transition from below. Yes. So the other argument. So to further illustrate, kind of what I'm talking about, I want to talk about a common argument that comes against this. Um, there's some socialists in the movement who see contra Marx that we should simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it to our purposes. I'm gonna lay out what their arguments generally are and then go over some of the common arguments they make against uh, the position that I laid out of mine. First, the common sense of this alternative position is this. Um, And I'm gonna call the position utopian incrementalism. It's that socialist, socialist changes by doing the following. First, we build movements for reforms with broad appeal in the idea that we're building broad support for socialism. Usually these reforms are designed around some kind of legislation, which is often written by an NGO or a lobbyist organization. We try to get it passed through Congress. The best versions of this position are clear that we need to build a mass movement to do that, um, but the mass movement is only seen as a pressure tool. They're not actually enacting it. They're passive, the politician does it, they pressure the, the person who's actually doing the action, which is the politician. So the goal being to incrementally accumulate electoral victories. So if the main actor is the politician, then that's really the key. So the goal is to incrementally accumulate electoral victories in order to, in the end, win a majority in Congress, maybe president too, they're not really clear. Then the socialist movement perhaps can try to make moves to nationalize key industries through laws or executive fiat, not sure which one. The worst of these positions. Uh, believes a fantasy story that then will pass socialist laws that will be passed to change the institutional structure of capitalism and then out of respect for the legality of the state the army and the police remain loyal to the socialist run majority state the capitalists are outfoxed by a clever strategy and voila we have something called socialism but usually they're just fine with some kind of nationalization so that position, I think, is like a pure reformism uh, that believes the capitalist mode of production can be fixed from within. There is a more savvy version of this, and it's articulated by someone like the early 20th century German socialist Kautsky, and repeated by some of those who, fairly dogmatically, hold those positions today. And they have some acknowledgement that there will be some kind of attempt of the capitalist class to stop this hypothetical socialist majority government. People like Kalski sometimes allude to this by saying like a final test of strength or something like that in in their writings. But it's never defined what that is. Presumably, it's a mass defense of a capitalist-led coup of this hypothetical government. The problem being is it's always ill-defined. Revolution is not on the agenda anytime soon, so let's not talk about it. That's how it's played out. And there are two main critiques of this position. The first is on its gradualism, and the second one is on the very question of revolution. The structure of the state as i talked about before relies on taxes and investment as i described before this means the question of crisis figures into the struggle for reforms when capitalism is booming reforms are easier to apply when capitalism is an economic downturn that then places immense pressure on the rolling back of reforms in an attempt to stimulate capitalist investment this puts the hypothetical majority of socialist government in a tremendous bind do they either restrain and demobilize their own supporters' hopes and demands as they strike and protest to preserve what's being taken away, or do they promote further radicalization and thus provoke direct confrontation with the capitalist class? The track record of all these experiments is uh, using the state in the previous one to restrain and demobilize the masses. Past attempts have always taken this restraint option as the direct confrontation actually would entail rupture of the state. And there's a whole bunch of examples I'm not going to go over, but it's been tried before. It's not a novel new thing. France in 1936, Chile in 1973, France in 1981, Greece in 2015, and Sweden, which some people hold as the ideal, had a left-wing socialist government, the Social Democratic Workers' Party, the SAP, from 1932 until 1976, it's a long time and a working class that went on strike more than any other European country. So much so that in Europe, if you had the Swedish disease, it means it was workers who struck too often. That was how it was seen. But by 1975, the balance began to shift. SAP lost power. In the 1990s, they gave up some of the nationalization. Things aren't going quite as well. In the fall of 2018, a neo-Nazi party, the Swedish Democrats, won 20% of the vote and are polling higher than the SAP. Uh, and they have elections in a couple weeks, people expect them to win more. So this is the, the, the golden fleece that they hold before us. So in short, the dilemma, to quote British socialist Ian Burchell for these, is to challenge the pursuit of profit makes reform impossible, but to leave profit unchallenged means that no significant progress can be made towards equality. So again, it's a Gordian knot only be cut through, cut through by destroying the state. So the alternative to this conundrum is to move to upend capitalist social relation, and that means upending private property. <laughs> Now, that leads us to what happens when we do that, and that's the question of revolution. And so the utopian incrementalists kind of sequester the question of revolution away. It's not a, not a relevant question now. It's not immediately on the, the agenda. And this is either naive, in that it underestimates the eventual, crucial importance of it, or dishonest, in which they actually don't think revolution is possible or desirable. Uh, Tyler Zimmer, one of my rampant comrades, wrote an article responding to this very assertion by Vivek Chibber. He said, if a goal, like revolution, is simply not worth pursuing, then it's hardly worth debating which strategies might best enable us to achieve it. Likewise, if a goal, however desirable it might be in itself, is impossible to achieve, or at any rate so far-fetched as to be totally unrealistic even in the long run, it's unworthy of serious consideration now or in the future. But, on the other hand, if a goal is desirable and feasible in the long run, but impossible to achieve in the short run, it seems extremely unwise to push it to the decide and dismiss it as irrelevant to those organizing in the here and now. Now, I would just underscore that. It's not just unwise, but disastrous, as indeed this final conflict with capital and its foot soldiers of counter-revolution is the most crucial, difficult and dangerous challenge that we face. It is in this struggle that revolutions win or they repress in blood? And if we're building a socialist movement or an organization of revolutionaries that are unprepared politically, organizationally for these moments of highest level of class struggle, then we are sure to lose. And that truth has brutal historical lessons in the annals of capitalist revenge for movements, organizations, and governments that, according to the rulers, took it a step too far. So with that bright and sunny point, (laughs) I want to shift to talking about There's basically two main arguments that their side make as far as like why we can't have revolution right now. And they're really consistent. In reading the literature, the same basic two arguments are made to bolster their position from the writings of Kalski from the early 20th century to the Eurocommunists in the 70s and 80s like Santiago Carrillo and Enrique Berlinger, related thinkers like Polansis, and to their contemporary adherents uh, largely in Jacobin. So there's little novelty to these arguments, even though they're always presented to us as though this is the undogmatic, realistic position. So the first argument they make is about the military and the state. Revolution, they argue, is impossible because modern militaries and repressive apparatuses are far more developed, advanced, and solid than they were 100 years ago at the time of Marx and Lenin and the Russian Revolution. Now, there is an obvious truth to this, and this is why it is and will be a massive challenge. I think it'd be delusional to say otherwise, that it wouldn't be a very difficult thing. And that's why when I talk about revolution, I don't think of some kind of small scale armed guerrilla type struggle that immediately pursues a military strategy is something that's effective or is anything but suicidal in this country at this moment. The revolution will have to have a mass character involving huge sections of society in the streets, engaging in militant ac- action, taking over buildings, taking over workplaces. And yes, there may need to be armed defense, but its mass quality and connections to being being able to shut down society and run it anew are its main tools. Acknowledging this being a major challenge, I think that the idea this means that revolution is thus unrealistic doesn't stand up to critical scrutiny. Because when they say it's difficult because the military and whatnot, they don't present an alternative. It's utopian to believe in the political neutrality of the army. Like, do we actually believe that state bodies like the CIA is going to adhere to the conventions of legality under pressure and a system in crisis and the question of expropriation on the line? Like, do we believe the military brass in toto are not going to come to the force of reaction? Like we see how much, even in much lesser moments of struggle with far less on the line for the ruling class, how the police work in lockstep tandem with the far right. And the scores of examples like kyle Rentenhouse and getting his bottle of water from the cops after he shot people during the 2020 anti-racist rebellion should stand as examples the challenge of counter-revolution by forces of reaction is a real one and the fact that it is harder doesn't answer the question is how you stop it their side says rally to defend the majority socialist government even if this were for the specific situation counter-revolution will only be defeated Uh, if we destroy the means for counter-revolution. And that means breaking apart the state, the repressive apparatus, and seizing the means of production. And that is called socialist revolution. And when we do that, it cannot be accompanied by any respect for private property or servility to bourgeois legality. That's the first charge. The second charge they make, which I like less, is that bourgeois democracy has legitimacy for the vast majority of working people. Parliaments, they argue, are gains won by working class people and thus should be defended. And the first thing to say is this, there's a wild historical inaccuracy. Universal suffrage, the right to vote as limited as it is now, was a demand and won by working class people. But parliaments were not. Parliaments were designed to secure rule by bourgeois, by the bourgeois or even implemented from above as pressure valves to... to, to call out fears of rebellion. But that aside, again, you know, the, it is the case that this is something that needs to be overcome. Like people do have, uh, there's a material base for reformism. Um, it can't be overstated. It's true that the majority of people in the US still have various illusions in reformism via the state. The fact that the state, out of its function to moderate class conflict created by contradictions of capitalism, has been a mechanism through which workers have made gains is the material basis um, for modern reformism. But that's not a good thing. That's a hurdle to be overcome. Even modern reformists even modern reformism has its contradictions. I think the notion that bourgeois democracy is legitimate in the eyes of the working class is not so simple to argue when you look around beyond the simple allure of the fact that there is notions of reformism. Um, there was a Gallup poll in July that found Congress had a 7% approval rate. Um, the same Gallup poll found that the average confidence in all political institutions with a historic low. And if you look at the scale of anger, thanks, if you look at the scale of anger globally, we saw 2019 as a massive wave of demonstrations of anti-government character from Sudan to Hong Kong, Colombia, Algeria, Haiti, and this found expression in the anti-racist rebellion here after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And in a Newsweek poll then, a majority of Americans were in favor of the burning down of a Minneapolis police station. At the time, the approval rating of that Insurrectionary Act was more favorable than both presidential candidates, the two capitalist parties. (laughs) So in the context of what do we do as, as revolutionaries, what do we say with our propaganda and our attitude to work building movements? Do we stoke support for liberal democracy and the status quo and reinforce the legitimacy of the system, or do we try to fuel the fire of intense dissatisfaction and say, yes, the system is rotten, it cannot save you, and it has to be abolished? These are precisely different tasks. As this relates to a question that I might anticipate coming up in the discussion, and I'm getting new to wrapping. Um, I can imagine someone saying, so Brian, how do you convince my mother, friend, coworker, that the need to smash the state?
0: Yeah.
2: And to that I say, you won't. Um, the notion of winning people to revolution isn't a line. It's not going to happen by you or me standing on the street corner and just saying we need a revolution over and over and over. Uh-huh. It's a process. People change their mind by participating in struggle yeah. and revolutionaries in struggle patiently connecting the immediate task of the day to the final need for socialist revolution either of those don't work in the absence of the other. And that is why the self-activity of the masses of everyday people is so important. And it has to take the form, not just a passive support of a candidate, but people take an active uh, control of their lives and fighting for their own futures. Uh-huh. Um, and this is a very real thing. Like yesterday here at the conference, I was cheering um, a uh, discussion about the Sudanese revolution, which I think is uh, probably one of the most advanced uh, politically rich revolutionary struggles going on right now in the world. Um, and one of the panelists and participant in the revolution, Muzana O'Neill, talked about the process of how consciousness changes. So they described how initially people were revolting around bread and then it came to the entire system has to fall. And she referenced the old adage that is attributed to Lenin, about sometimes there are decades when nothing happens and sometimes there are weeks when decades happen. And she said, those aren't just pretty words. This actually happens. And this is from something that's happening right now. So I think we should take that to heart. And so to conclude, the capitalist state structure functions such that it's not a direct instrument of the ruling class, but an apparatus that floats above society that works to generalize the best interests of the maintenance of the capitalist system and promote the interests of the national ruling class. At its core, it's special bodies of armed men that are used to enforce subservience to market order. It's a hurdle to be overcome if we want to talk about, you know, taking democratic control over society. And if we want to transform capitalist socialist relations to building a socialist world, the capitalist state needs to be smashed into smithereens and relegated to the annals of ancient history.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.